Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest is what the people in the street shouted out to Jesus uh, the, the day after that he had the, the dinner honor meal with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Hosanna literally means, oh, save. The word means salvation. The people are crying out, save us. And this large crowd that was shouting out the salvation of Jesus, uh, they had assembled not only to see Jesus, but they had heard about Zacchaeus, and they wanted to see this man that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus raising back to life Lazarus was a, a huge event. It was the event that had a huge part in triggering Palm Sunday. And in light of Jesus raising Lazarus, John 12, 18 tells us, for this reason also the people went out and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Hosanna, the fig tree, and prayer. What do these things have to do with each other? As we look at our text this morning in, in Mark 11, um, all of these events that are mentioned in this chapter are connected, they're interwoven. Um, in, our, in our chronological walk through the, the books of the gospel, we now enter into the events of the last week of Jesus' life before his execution on the cross. And Mark 11 is the text that we'll be reading through this morning. And this chapter is very, in it is contained a very difficult scripture to understand. I'll go ahead and read it to you now it's, so that you know that where we're heading. It's verse 22 through 24. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Does this verse mean that we can just ask for anything and if we believe hard enough, if we have enough faith, if we have enough belief, if we have enough confidence, then God is obligated to grant our requests? Well, in order to properly answer that question, let's do a little bit of uh, looking at the surrounding context leading up to Jesus saying this. So we're gonna back up to verse one of the chapter. It says, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and, and Bethany, near the mountain of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. So immediately after Jesus um, raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, the scripture tells us he went to Jericho and that's where he had the meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, after that, Jesus and his disciples were traveling towards Jerusalem as most of all the country of Israel was ramping up and gearing up for the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover celebration. And Jesus stayed in Bethany, this, this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, a small little village just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And it was near the Mount of Olives, a, a mountain that overlooks Jerusalem and, and where the temple is situated. And after that celebration dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus sent his, his two disciples into Bethpage, the, the nearby village across from Bethany, in order to fetch a donkey's colt. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I love the detail that they would find the donkey immediately as they entered into the village and that Jesus told them what would be said and that what should they say in return. And what happened? Verse four, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. Everything was just as he said it would be. It was perfect event foresight for Jesus. And all these that heard of Lazarus being raised back to life, they came out to accompany Jesus. In verse eight, many spread their coats on, in the road and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. With these words and actions, the people were declaring Jesus as the long-awaited prophesied Messiah. And not only that, there was a, a hint of defying Rome's authority over them. Uh, they were declaring Jesus as king of Israel. So I want you to picture it. Jesus is, is not riding on a horse. No, a, a horse would give more of the image of vengeance and war and judgment. But a donkey, a common poor person's animal, one that symbolized humility and peace. And I don't know if you know it or not, but most, if not all donkeys, have a, a hairline across their shoulders that's a little bit darker than the rest of their hair and then a, a ridge across their, their, their spinal cord so it creates this perfect cross. Uh, Google it, I promise you, it's, it's amazing. All donkeys have this. Some it's a little bit more pronounced than others. Don't Google it now, I see you over there. <laughs> How fitting for Jesus to, to ride this, this animal that already has a cross on its back. And there he is sitting on this donkey, riding into Jerusalem. And it's springtime, there's new green growth appearing on the roadsides. There's a lot of, excitement, there's joy, there's anticipation, there's wonder, anticipation in the air. And a large crowd is declaring Jesus is king and with all this pomp and circumstance, what does Jesus do as he arrives into Jerusalem, the city of kings? Does he take charge and he makes orders now that he's arrived? Uh, does he shoo out the Romans? What he does is actually really surprising. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. That was a little underwhelming, right? He just left? Had most of the people that Jesus intended to confront, had they already left for the day? Uh, was there significance in Jesus just merely observing the state of the temple, his father's house, and then coming back to it later? Was the intent to show the large processional crowd that yes, he was king, but yet there was a problem concerning the temple that prevented him from functioning as their king. More than likely, it was yes to all of these questions. So as disappointing as it was to the crowd, after surveying the temple with his piercing eyes, he returns back to Bethany. It, definitely not a move that anyone would have expected from any king. 
But the next morning, they return to, back to Jerusalem, and on the way, look at what happens. Verse 12, on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, I believe this event is very much attached to the previous day's events when Jesus looked around the temple and then left and went back to Bethany. In order to see this connection, there's something that you need to understand about fig trees and how they grow. Fig trees, after the leaves fall off during the winter months, the green leaves begin budding and and sprouting and growing during springtime. But at the same time, simultaneously, there's a little growth of a a knob. It's It's a little extra bud that is a bit of a forerunner to the the real figs that will later grow. And these little knobs are are picked off and eaten by children and and others, and if they're not eaten, they eventually just fall off on their own, and then they allow for the growth of the real figs that will come later in the season. Now, if there's a fig tree that's budding its leaves during spring, and these little knobs are not present, then that means that there will not be any figs later in the months ahead. these little knobs served as an indicator that the tree was healthy and that it would later produce fruit. And so here in this passage, though it was not the season for figs, Jesus and his disciples would have had every reason to expect from a a green leafy fig tree that it contained these little edible pre-fruit knobs that served as an indicator of, of of a healthy tree that would later produce fruit. There wasn't. The tree in its current state was not going to produce any figs in any amount of time, no more so than a dead tree would yield figs. Now here's the parallel. The previous day, the same thing had happened. The joy and excitement of a springtime Passover celebration with all the newly green branches budding in the fields and being laid down in the streets as a crowd of people declared Jesus as king from a distance, this would all appear to be very promising of Israel. Promising of Israel bearing fruit that would be pleasing to God. From a distance, they looked like a green, leafy, healthy fig tree. But as Jesus arrived up close to Jerusalem and there entered the the temple courtyard, he very clearly saw through the green leaves that there wasn't any real indicator of real fruit growing. The forerunner knobs were completely missing. All the green leaves were were pointless. It was just to show that there wouldn't be any fruits from the fig tree of Israel as a whole. Often I feel that perhaps sometimes the state of the church, at least in the United States, where it's easy to do so, is such. It's so easy to... To, to go to church, to, to, to know the right answers, to say the right things, hang out with the right people, and show all our green leaves. But often, I wonder if Jesus takes a deeper, closer look and looks and says, wow, there's just really not a whole lot of fruit coming from the fig tree. May it not be so. May it not be said of, of that, of us. Consider these circumstances of Mark 11 with the words of Micah the prophet in, in Micah 7, 1 through 2. He says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. 
There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. In this very moment of fig tree barrenness, there were men lying in wait for the bloodshed of Jesus. Men that actually claimed to know and serve God. Men primarily functioning out of... uh, what was considered as God's house, the temple, the the very establishment that was meant to be a means of reconciliation between God and man. This very establishment was now the one that was preventing the one who would provide permanent reconciliation between God and man. It was an impossible situation. So what would Jesus do facing these odds? Well, before we look and see what, in verse 15 and following, let Let me share with you yet another biblical reference to a fig tree. It's a parable that Jesus had just previously taught in Luke 13. He says, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years, note the three years, we'll come back to that. For three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, at this point in our passage of Mark 11, Jesus has been ministering in Israel for three years, looking for fruit on the fig tree of Israel without finding any. Just like the parable in Luke. He's ready to cut the tree down, yet... What, what does he do? Does he destroy the temple right then and there? No, in his mercy, he gives it more time, but not without doing a little bit of digging around it, removing the weeds and putting in some fertilizer that might help jumpstart some growth leading to the bearing of fruit. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of money changers and seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. The fruit of Israel was to bear, uh, they were to bear the, the right connection and communication with God. They were to be the mouthpiece announcing the the way for right connection and communication with God for all the nations. Yet business and economics and greed were some of the weeds that were choking out the growth of fruit. And so Jesus did some digging. He did some weed pulling, driving out those who were misusing what God had given. And then he left, more than likely to head back to Bethany. Now in the verses that follow, we enter into the third day. It's the third time now that Jesus is traveling back into Jerusalem. In light of Jesus rising from the dead on the third day, perhaps this is not a coincidence Verse 20 and 21, as as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, 
Look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, Jesus' command of the fig tree, uh, it wasn't fulfilled slowly over time. It, it didn't die a natural death as a tree might naturally occur, but rather it happened immediately. And within 24 hours, it was completely withered from the roots at the bottom all the way up to the top. It was completely dead, just like Jesus would be in the early hours of the third day after his crucifixion. Completely dead. Surely Peter wasn't surprised at this point at what Jesus had said had come true. No, he'd seen this over and over again uh, in even more radical ways. But perhaps his comment was just taking notice. Uh, This tree withered would have stuck out like a sore thumb in the midst of the sea of other spring foliage that was greening and, and budding. Yet perhaps this miracle seemed just a little dark, a little bit out of place in light of the the joyous kingly procession that took place just three days earlier. And all of Jesus' other miracles that they had witnessed were ones that were bringing life and blessing and, and healing, not death, curse, and withering. But the truth is, you you can't have the Jesus of life and blessing and healing without having and knowing the Jesus who who righteously in his authority will one day bring about death, curse, and withering to those who reject him as king. Nor can you have the Jesus of life and blessing and healing unless you first know the Jesus who died, who was cursed, and who withered away on the cross. Jesus was just days away from his death on the cross. He was just days away from this death and curse and withering away on that cross. His followers were about to face the most difficult, seemingly insurmountable mountain of their spiritual journey. Even after his resurrection, they would be sifted and persecuted and hunted down by the Jewish religious leaders and the heathen Romans. There would still be a battle raging for those who were now accepting of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and then between them and those that were still looking to the temple up on the mountain next to the Mount of Olives. The nation of Israel would also suffer a, a mighty blow for not only being unfaithful to God but for also having rejected the gift of his son Jesus as God was gonna bring about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself. Yes, there were dark days ahead for Jesus and his disciples. Dark days on many levels. And as Jesus headed to Jerusalem now for the third day in a row, and as Peter was taken aback by the the withering of the fig tree, in light of all the foreshadowed darkness, Jesus says these words of encouragement. Verse 22, have faith in God. Though the newly crowned king would be arrested and sentenced to death just three days later. Even though all the disciples at that time would then be scattered, despite those adhering to the temple and its traditions, still not believing, even though the followers of Jesus would very quickly become men and women killed for their faith, even though Jerusalem and the temple would soon be destroyed by the Romans, despite the death the curse, and the withering. Jesus says, have faith in God. This isn't some kind of 
name it and claim it first to, to say, okay, just let's rip it out of context. Have faith in God and you can just pray anything. No, this was a very intense moment for Jesus and his disciples. This was a verse saying, despite what happens, still trust, still have faith, believe, know that he loves you, know he's gonna work it out, know he's gonna accomplish his purposes, know he will never forsake you nor abandon you. Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking back towards Jerusalem from the side of the, the Mount of Olives where Bethany is located. And between the Mount of Olives and, the, and Jerusalem, there's a, a steep valley. It's the Kidron Valley. And so you go down from the Mount of Olives into the valley and you come back up, climb up to Jerusalem and there where the temple is seated. Whether Jesus and his disciples are up here on the Mount of Olives and they're headed towards Jerusalem or whether they're already in the valley and they're now looking up towards the temple, either way, very clearly, they could see the mountain and the temple from where it sits. And perhaps looking straight ahead at that temple, situated on the, the high elevation of the mountain, as they're climbing up towards it, Jesus then says in verse 23, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. All the darkness, everything that was coming centered around this mountain of Jerusalem. All the dark days ahead revolved around this mountain on which the temple sat. And as impossible as it seemed, God had already set into motion the, the removal of that mountain. It was going to happen no matter what at this point. And I believe Jesus here offered to those listening who were entangled in thousand years of worth of tradition and bondage, he offered to them a way out. To truly believe that they could be set free from the, the mountain of Jerusalem and from the mountain of the temple. Set free to believe and follow Jesus into a new covenant into a new kingdom, into a new relationship with God, offered only by him entering into death, becoming cursed, withered sacrifice on the cross. And then in verse 24, he says, therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. The word therefore connects this verse uh, to the previous verse, 22 and 23. So when Jesus says all things, does he really mean all things, including those things disconnected from this immediate context? I mean, can you ask and, and believe to become God? Uh, no. I, can you treat God like a genie and ask for any tangible material and if you believe hard enough, then he's required to give those things to you? No. Obviously, there must be some parameters, some rules that, that govern these words that Jesus says. In fact, when we use the words all and everything, when we say things like uh, anyone, we usually don't mean all, everything, everyone, anything. If I ask right now, if, is everyone listening? Most of you will nod your heads and someone might be smart aleck and, and say, well, not everyone, everyone. I mean, Mayor Jimmy Harris isn't here listening right now, right? 
If you go into a, a restaurant and you, you tell the waiter, well, I'll have anything you have. You don't really mean anything. You're not going to accept a, a rock cooked over medium well, right? Our words are defined by the context in which we place them. There's obviously at least one caveat to this verse. Jesus mentions it in the next verses, 25 and 26. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. If you're asking for forgiveness from God, and and that would be included in the all things mentioned in verse 24, but if you haven't forgiven someone else, then even if you boldly ask and believe with all your heart that you have received forgiveness, you really won't receive it. Now, why would Jesus mention this particular caveat? Well, think about the whole context of the situation. All the dark days coming ahead and the disciples would soon have an overabundance of opportunities to forgive or not to forgive people and circumstances. If we balance out this verse with the rest of scripture, there are other places that would also point to this verse not being absolute in nature. Paul was denied healing, although he prayed three times earnestly. God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Jesus healed the the man blind from birth and he confirmed that it wasn't the man's sin or lack of faith that somehow prevented him from being healed. No, he was sick so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Scripture also gives us other parameters concerning prayer. James 4, 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So you can't ask for all things and expect to receive them if you have wrong motives. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have, ha- we have the requests which we have asked from him. Notice the whatever we ask is first preceded by the parameter of anything according to his will. The all things of Mark eleven twenty four would thus need to be within the parameter of anything according to his will. Even Jesus himself, as we'll see later, we'll see him praying in the garden, even he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. One commentator put it like this, prayer is not a means by which God serves us. Rather, it is a means by which we serve God. Prayer is not a means by which we get our will done in heaven, but a means by which God gets his will done on earth. Wow, we should put that filter on every time we pray, right? Prayer is the vehicle by which we serve God and accomplish his will on earth. Is that how you approach the all things for which you pray and ask, verse 24? Father, I I thank you for your word this morning and 
there's a lot of difficult things in this chapter and we wrestle with the tension of, of knowing that you have given us authority, you have given us power, there is power in our words, yet there's a tension between that and knowing what your desires, what your will is, and knowing that you do desire at times for us to endure, to, to suffer, to, to be persecuted. It, somehow we have to live in that tension. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't err on one side or the other, that we wouldn't um, be selfishly bold and, and pray and, and ask you for things that are against your will, and on the other hand, may we not be so timid to never ask you for anything, just thinking, oh, well, God's just gonna do whatever he wants to do. Somehow, we have to juggle and be in the middle knowing that you have given us power, and yet the power really comes from you, and we can't be against you. Lord, give us, as your sheep, give us the wisdom Give us the understanding. Give us the humility to know how to be your agents here on this earth accomplishing your will. Teach us how to pray, Father. Teach us how to engage with you and, and boldly communicating with you and interceding on the behalf of others. But Lord, may we not overstep our bounds either. May we submit to you and be able to trust you that you love us deeply and you are working in ways that will absolutely blow our minds. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can trust your word. Continue to teach us, Father. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.